0: This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty.
1: Hello. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. David Nichols. He's a professor with the School of Public Health and Psychosocial Studies at Auckland University of Technology in Auckland, New Zealand. Dr. Nichols, welcome. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. Today, we're gonna talk about really two things. The first is a historical essay that he wrote for PTJ entitled, Physical Therapy's Hidden History But we're also going to talk a little bit about a book that he recently wrote entitled The End of Physiotherapy. A wonderful title, by the way, David. Uh, I love titles that draw people into into the material. And you couldn't have come up with a better one, in my view. A friend of mine, um, my ex-boss, insists on calling it
0: the death of physiotherapy, which just reminds me that he hasn't read it. Because uh, (laughs) uh, if he had
1: read it, he'd realize that's not what I mean. That's right, and, and you you, have, you take great pains to say you're not trying to be pessimistic and negative, and so I... No,
0: the opposite, the very opposite.
1: I agree, I agree, but the title does grab you. Yeah, thank you. So let, let's start with your essay. Talk a little bit about your sense of why you say the history of physiotherapy is hidden.
0: When I started... The work in preparing for my PhD back in 2002 two three time, I was really interested in the conditions that had made present physiotherapy possible. Why was it that physios were facing the kinds of challenges that they were? To do that, I had to go back in time to see where physiotherapy had come from, what its underlying premises were, and to do that, I had to go back into quite a lot of archive material. What I found was that the archive material is, has been generally poorly kept and purely curate, poorly curated and stored. Most often things are just in boxes and they're left in people's attics or in their garages. And the libraries don't really have a curation system that's been very good. This was back in the early 2000s. Things are a bit better these days. But that one of the other things that I found was that there were almost no personal stories from physiotherapists themselves. And actually, if you look at our books and if you look at our journal articles, you have professional commentaries and that's the closest you get. But you don't really get a sense of the working lives of the therapists. So hence why so many of the history projects, the centennial projects that we've seen in the recent years have focused on oral histories, because I think that desire to capture something of the quotidian, the everyday, the mundane work of the physiotherapist. If you contrast that with, say, medicine, for years, the idea of a heroic doctor was a feature of historical literature. The stories of these great, usually men, but also um, women too, who pioneered medicine. it was very, they, were, they were very autobiographical. There was no such thing in physiotherapy really to speak of. And it led me to think, well, I wonder whether there are heroes and heroines in physiotherapy to speak of and, and, and what are their stories? And that led me, to the work on neurasthenia, which um, was was mentioned in, in the article about a clinical problem in the late 19th century that was massive in the States and Europe and parts of Asia that seemed to hold all of the components that later physiotherapy and physical therapy would become, but pitched these new women into, an, into a very odd situation in treating other women. And the complete absence of their stories was really striking to me. So I think it's a, it's a feature of physiotherapy that we don't really see the work that we do as being historically noteworthy. We are practical people. We like to do things. Um, the work that we do is often technically very skillful. But we we don't seem to record the day to day stories or the heroic adventures of physiotherapists themselves until recently. With some of the history projects, as I say, that we've we've embarked on with centenaries.
1: Well, I have to admit, I, I found it interesting your writing about neurasthenia because I wasn't really aware of the role of physical therapists in that illness. Um, in this country, we seem to focus more on the emergence of physical therapy out of the various uh, wars and conflicts and the mm. polio epidemic, but not so much um, neurasthenia. So in what ways do you think our practice today was influenced by what they were doing back then for that condition? Because you talk about that in your essay.
0: Mm. Well, if you if you look at the work of the reconstruction aids in World War One. One of the things that's really striking about that is you've got young women mainly handling young men. Now, today that wouldn't be considered to be a problem because physiotherapy has physical therapy has established itself as a legitimate and respected profession. So really there aren't any questions about that. But a hundred years ago, there absolutely were. And the idea that a young woman could go into a military situation where there's a young man who's injured and vulnerable and emotionally traumatized and take them away from that scene, put them in a gymnasium, give them massage and be soothing and caring, and um, would have been considered quite shocking, quite scandalous. So for those young women to get themselves into a position where as a profession they could do that legitimately, clearly took some work, clearly took some effort on on the part of their forebears to create the conditions in which you could legitimately touch people without fear of scandal. So to look at physiotherapy in the States, say, beginning in 1914, I think you also have to get cast your eye back a little bit to the conditions that were set up in the decades before that made it possible for that work to happen. And one of those things was about the, the ability for women to establish a professional career that was outside of nursing or teaching, which were the two main careers for women in, by the, in the middle of the 19th century, develop a new professional role, but also make it distinctive from nurses. And I think this is one of the things that we, need, we We haven't really studied and looked at historically in the profession. The predominant health role for women in, in healthcare care in the latter part of the 19th century was as a kind of caring, angelic, sisterly nursing role. Where neurasthenia is interesting, and neurasthenia is a kind of nerve shock. Today, we might call it a, um, ME, for instance or fibromyalgia. but It bears some resemblance to some of those kind of shell shock kind of post-traumatic stress issues. It was an enormously common condition in the developed world in the 19th century, perhaps the the most common neurological pathology that was diagnosed. It sat alongside hysteria and uh, hypochondria as these kind of pseudo um, neurological uh, diagnoses. And the people who discovered it and explored it the therapies were were heroes I mean Silas Weir Mitchell was perhaps one of America's foremost civil war neurosurgeons he developed this idea of a rest cure and the idea of the rescue was that the the woman who was diagnosed as neurasthenic and predominantly it was women would be taken away from her home and put into an isolation, uh, a house or a hospital or some kind of facility in isolation, essentially locked in a room, confined to bed. And for six to eight weeks, they weren't allowed to move, brush their hair, go to the toilet, turn a newspaper, read a book. They weren't allowed to do anything. And they were essentially made to be entirely passive. And the idea was that it would build up their bodily resources by overfeeding them so they were force-fed essentially on a very rudimentary diet but because the people who developed these approaches to treatment didn't want wanted also to build the woman's muscles up and make her stronger whilst also confining her they brought in masseurs and these masseurs were brought in to basically do two things one was to be to do vigorous massage and the other thing was to apply electrotherapy, Faradism and Galvanism primarily. And the idea was that after a course of force feeding and isolation and this form of physical therapy, the woman would be stronger and then would be able to return to her normal life. It's a brutal, brutal regime, highly um, paternalistic and patriarchal. It's been written about extensively for the way to infantil- um, infantilized these women, turned them into children. So one of the interesting things then connecting this issue about physiotherapy narratives was these masseurs were women, mostly middle and upper class women masseurs who were going into the houses of other women and essentially performing massage and electrotherapy at the behest of a male doctor who was applying this kind of paternalistic attitude towards not only the woman patient, but the nurse who stayed in the room for the entire period of the woman's confinement, and the masseuse who came in and did the therapy. They worked under strict medical instruction. For the masseuse, they were all nurse trained, nurse or midwifery trained. And so you can see here that there's clearly a desire on the part of those women to develop a different professional identity other than the nurse, who is this caring sisterly role, and remains with the woman the entire time. This masseuse can come in and leave, can come and go. They work at the instruction of the doctor, but they're doing something therapeutic as opposed to just broadly caring. So one of the most interesting things about this health problem was not only how these women were able to establish a practice that was based on massage and electrotherapy and movement, which was the forerunner of the modalities that physical therapists took up, They were able to carve out a distinctive professional identity away from nurses, but to do it, they had to accept a very patriarchal, paternalistic male perspective on treatment. Hence why the idea that physiotherapists and physical therapists later adopted this notion of the body as machine, as a you come in, you fix the problem, you go away again, may well have been present in the work that these women did when they discovered neurasthenia as this massive problem that they could do something about. Hence this connection between the narratives of their stories. Because what I'd really love to know is how these women reconciled themselves to doing that work. How did they feel? Because many of them were suffragettes. How did they feel about going into these women's houses, not making any kind of relationship with them, treating them physically, walking away again and obeying the will of the male doctor. What kind of tension did that create in both their sense of their personal professional roles, but also their, their, their sense of being a female new professional? The tensions must have been terrible. They want to create a new professional identity away from nursing. But that to do that, they have to adopt this kind of patriarchal paternalistic attitude. The fact that there are no stories... Um, that I can find of these masseurs and how they dealt with that tension is really interesting. And it speaks, I think, to a kind of attitude within physiotherapy, that it's the technical skill of doing the thing that matters, not the existential and the relational and the communicative and the uh, humanistic dimensions of the practice that might lend one to write stories about it, tell, tell stories of how it was done and what it meant.
1: As I listen to you talk about um, these events, I can see some of the historical connections to, a, to physical therapy when I came into the field in the 1970s. Many of those tensions, although at a much lower level, were still there. Mm-hmm. But let's, mm-hmm. let's make a transition to talk a little bit about your book. Okay. I, you're, you're touching on some issues that you talk about in, in your book. You make the point, if I'm reading it correctly, that although physiotherapy currently is in a really good position as uh, an occupation and we're playing a significantly greater role within education and within healthcare, nonetheless, you see us as facing a significant crisis. Um, What do you see as the crisis um, facing our profession and uh, the risks that you see that we need to address as a field? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question, a big question.
0: I think that one of the things that I try, I've tried to establish in my thinking about this question to start with, is to bear in mind that the professions as we know them, physiotherapy, medicine, legal profession, all the professions we know of, are actually historically a very recent invention. Professions, as we know them, probably have only existed for a little over a century. And for the vast majority of human history, we haven't had professions. We've had trade crafts and we've had guilds and things like that. But the professions as we know them are relatively recent. And in fact, medicine only exists as a formal profession since about the 1850s, 1860s. And what the, the second thing, then, to bear in mind is I think this is largely a social question, a sociological question, because the existence of the professions I don't think really has much to do with their evidence or their efficacy or um, the kind of clinically related questions that we tend to focus very much on. We take medicine, for an example, until the discovery of the placebo effect in the 1910s, 1920s. Most, there was little evidence of any efficacy for medicine, but by the 1920s, medicine was already established as the elite model of a profession. So if medicine was able to establish itself as the the paradigm case of what a profession should be without any real evidence of its efficacy, it points to the fact that the existence of the professions is more of a social sociological issue than it is necessarily one about just bald facts. So I think one of the things when we're thinking about the crisis facing physiotherapy is that this isn't an issue that you can locate within the biological body. It isn't either, I don't think, an issue that you can relate within the kind of humanistic world of the lived being of a a person, of a patient. This is a sociological question. And part of the reason why I think there's um, a a significant problem for physiotherapists is that our training focuses almost exclusively on the biomedical domain, the biological domain. And although it's expanded in recent years, um, psychologically informed physiotherapy, CFT, CBT, ACT, a lot of these acronyms for what are essentially um, brain and behavior kind of approaches to physiotherapy, They're really just adding a sort of brain as governor over the body as machine. They're not a radical transformation away from um, the biomedical way of viewing health. So our training doesn't really equip us with the necessary vocabulary and language and ideas in things like sociology and philosophy to be able to understand what's happening in the social world. Now, I mean, I think if, if we... Um, Think about some of the challenges that are facing physiotherapy in in just the health professions in recent years. We've all gone through years now of austerity, um, significant cuts to public funding. Um, We've seen disruption of most other professions. If you go from um, think about professions like um, journalism and manufacturing and banking and law and logistics, they've all been radically disrupted particularly by digital disruption, AI, and robotics. We're all influenced very much by a lot of um, changes in the way that we're encouraged to think. Uh, Using digital resources like Google Maps and YouTube and social media, it's changing the way particularly younger people now are approaching ideas about choice and freedom and um, professional identity and roles and responsibility. Um, It used to be that People would get lost if they wandered away from where they knew and they'd have to search on a map to find themselves. Nobody's lost anymore. You just open your phone and you know exactly where you are. Um, Spotify and iTunes means that people can choose whatever songs they want to play in whatever order. You don't have to go to a record shop and buy a whole album just because you liked one track. This is changing the way that people want to experience education and healthcare. They want to be able to make their choices, not follow a linear path from A to Z. Um, There's also, I mean, obviously, massive existential threats of COVID and um, climate change. But on a more local kind of health level, for years now, there's been a much greater skepticism about medicine and its claim to answer the burdens of health and illness. My grandparents used to say the doctor knows best uh, was a phrase they used often, but they had no choice. They, the only health professionals they could access or know was a doctor or possibly a nurse. Nowadays, people are flooded with options and choices. There's a lot more skepticism towards all authority. And the notion of expertise has now been radically deconstructed. We're expecting our patients to be much more um, informed and to be lay experts. One of the interesting things about the way that um, psychologically informed physiotherapy is is changing, is trying to change the nature of physiotherapy practice is to move the locus of thought around say pain, chronic pain, away from the tissues. This idea that the tissues are no longer the issues is, is an attempt to try and move the locus of where pain resides away from the tissues within the body. But I'm yet to see where these advocates for psychologically informed physiotherapy say that pain now resides. Does it reside in the person's lived experience? Is it an entirely phenomenological issue? Or does it is it a social construct? Now, in either case, those issues reject a biological view. One says that the pain resides within the tissues. The other one says it doesn't. You can't just have all of them playing out together and one of the problems that we face one of the crises in physiotherapy is that we're trying to expand away from the body as machine but because we haven't ever been equipped with that language to approach phenomenological lived experience existential concepts of health or the sociological social justice social determinants aspect of health those don't feature in our curriculum or in our scope we don't know necessarily how to articulate where we're moving to. So part of the crisis is people's scepticism, people's openness to change, um, the neoliberal pressures on economics that are forcing so many um, compromises, much more work, much less time with the patients, much more accountability and risk management, but also our existential problem in, in having the language to describe where we want to go
1: Two things strike me, David, as I listen to you and as I've read your writings. The first thing that strikes me is that much of what you've just articulated could be said about medicine as well. yeah. And that they're facing a very similar um, type crisis. Uh, I don't think we're unique in that regard. And I think you said that as well. The other thing that strikes me is that as I look back on our... Profession, at least over the 50 years that I've been in the field, we have evolved quite a bit. It's a very different profession than the one that I came into in the early 1970s. So, why advocate radical transformation instead of continual evolution as has been occurring, say, over the last half century? Well, I think two reasons, and I accept fully your argument about
0: medicine. I think you're absolutely right. I think medicine. All health professions actually are going through somewhat of a crisis. Medicine has some advantages, and nursing too, I think, because it has a history of scholarship, particularly sociological scholarship. From the period prior to the prior to the Second World War, medicine was considered the paradigm case for what a profession should be. Um, the idea was uh, comes from a concept called functionalism that medicine is successful because it meets a social need. It brings balance to society. Where there's illness, we have these medical people who help resolve and bring balance to society. And in return for their kind of altruism and public spiritedness, we give doctors professional autonomy. We give them prestige. We subsidize their training and their work and we offer them, we build hospitals so that they don't have to travel a long way to treat people. All of our professions saw that the health profession saw that as the model to follow and essentially tried to ape medicine's claims to autonomy and, and such and that's been a constant battle to demonstrate our true professionalism ever since physiotherapists have done that largely by following medic- the medicine's model being a close ally to medicine taking a very biomechanistic view of health um, but essentially doing many of the same things After the Second World War, that idea that professionals just bring balance to society, which is a very benign, nice way to think about the professions, came into serious critical comment. And medicine was the target case. And there's literature going back to the 1950s where sociologists start saying, well, hang on a minute. Maybe doctors aren't as altruistic as you think they are. Maybe they are much more self-interested. They seem to be driving some very fast cars and they haven't necessarily been doing great things for society. If you think about the Tuskegee syphilis trial and some of the ethical abuses that doctors have done and and malpractice. And now we've got the the opioid crisis in the States puts doctors again front and centre and it raises people's doubts about whether medicine is as public-spirited and disinterested as it always seemed. There is a long history of scholarship, of critical scholarship, looking at um, medically-led Western healthcare as a a proxy for colonisation. How medicine was a way in which uh, the soft powers of colonisation could be brought to um, provide a, a pliable health workforce so that we could maintain the machinery of of capital growth in the developed world. We've seen examples of um, the colonization of medical knowledge and physiotherapy, where I live in a Commonwealth country, which follows almost exactly a British model of physiotherapy. You'd find a very similar curriculum in Singapore and India and Canada and South Africa. America has a history of exporting its physical therapy curricula to Latin America. We have a history of being connected with things that now are coming back to us in questions about Black Lives Matter and Me Too movement, the gender division of labor, the way that we've normalized um, the body to the point where we've helped to define what disability is. And we, we trade on the basis that there will be a disabled population that we can rehabilitate. Uh, John Swain wrote a chapter in a book and he titled it, Are All Health Professionals Parasites? He's a disability activist who says that health professionals rely on their ability to spot new forms of disability to keep themselves in business. So all of this critical commentary has been building in the background. Almost none of it has been explored by physiotherapists. So um, you mentioned about the book I wrote a few years ago, a couple of years ago called The End of Physiotherapy. I've just about a month ago, finished the follow-up, which is called Physiotherapy Otherwise, which is an attempt to try and bring all of this sociological critique into physiotherapy and explain, situate physiotherapy sociologically, because I think the social space is perhaps the most important space we need to move into and start exploring. It's a great, vast, unexplored territory in physiotherapy and offers enormous potential to rethink what the profession might be. So... I think the reasons for the crisis are reasonably clear. There's um, the economic and digital what's called the what uh, in a in a Deloitte report recently they called it the long fuse big bang. It's taking health and education a lot longer to get to the point of disruption that we've seen in transportation and journalism and banking, but it's happening. And the kind of atomization of healthcare, the the idea that we're now taking health and deconstructing it in a quite interesting new way turning every facet of human being into a marketable commodity added to that the kind of groundswell of critique that's building around the professions and their claims to being their claims to their special enclosures their special privilege and their prestige they're coming together at the same time hence why there is a a strong move um, In other sociological literature to talk about us now entering what's called a post-professional era, and there's a whole chapter in this new book talking about what that means, what a post-professional healthcare would look like. We've seen it to some extent with COVID when people couldn't have access to their traditional providers, and many of the physical therapy providers scrambled to try and find ways to maintain a patient contact But many people have had to go off and find other ways to engage in health practices. And the truth is, if you live in the United States, there's there's about one physical therapist for every 5,000 people. 5,000 people. Now, if you put 5,000 people, just average people, into a football stadium, and you said how many of them would benefit from physical therapy, I bet you'd probably have about three that wouldn't need us. So of the 4,997 that need us, one gets to see a physical therapist. And you are in perhaps the most financially advanced economy in the world. If you live in the vast majority of the rest of the world, you're more likely to have one physical therapist for every thirty to 50,000 people. So the, the amount of unmet health need is so vast, I think we have an ethical duty as physiotherapists to ask ourselves whether... The question for the future of the profession is not how can we serve the best interests of the profession, but how can we get the physical therapies as widely spread as possible so that the the greatest number of people have access to high quality physical therapies. And if that means dissolving away the the 100-year project to build a physiotherapy profession, I think we have an ethical responsibility to ask whether that is the right thing we should be doing.
1: In this country, There's much more talk and writing about population health in physical therapy than ever before. I think that's consistent with what you're talking about, but I don't think it's in conflict with continuing to serve patients who need physical therapy services, right? Can't the profession move in in parallel tracks? I don't deny that
0: physical therapists have always thought about people have always clearly their therapies, might, they might be trained as technicians with high levels of skill and do fantastic Thomas tests. I mean, I don't deny that they do that and that the experienced, all experienced physical therapists learn very quickly that healthcare relies on knowing their client, knowing their patient, building a rapport, building a relationship. My issue is largely that that is despite their training and their scope largely rather than because of it. And it's worse, I think, when we deal with the sociological domain. Fair enough. Because physical therapists, I think, think of the social context as being something super added, layered on top of the biology. I'm saying that these domains reside entirely separately. And you could be a physical therapist that entirely denies the biological reality of illness. You can say that health is an entirely social construct. Your practice might be located in a community of need, you might be working entirely on social determinants of health, like poverty and access to services and income. You might be working in a social justice paradigm. Your whole nature of your practice might be different. At the moment, the only way you can really be a physical therapist is if you put the biological first. And that's one of the things I think we need to disrupt. Hence why I would argue the answer is not to see things like the biopsychosocial model as a way to smudge all of these things together but as a way to actually find three, at least three, if not more, I would argue a thousand distinctively different forms of physical therapy that exist with very different understandings of the nature of health.
1: Well, it's an interesting thought. It seems a bit overwhelming when you <laughs> talk about a thousand different dimensions. It's not, it- not so much a, it's not so much a thousand different dimensions. What I'm talking about,
0: and I explain this again more in this new book, is the idea of vernacular physical therapy so in architecture for instance there's an idea of vernacular architecture which is architecture this is buildings that are in, in keeping with their surroundings so if you're building a new house in the middle of the the the, the upstate new york and you're in you're in the forests you don't put a 20 foot skyscraper in the middle of the forest you build a building that's in keeping uses local materials it looks like it fits in the space I'm arguing for physiotherapy like that. How can it be that I can ask for the same kinds of physio- physical therapy for a client in Auckland as I can for somebody in Bangalore or in Berlin or in Boston? Surely what we need to have is a thousand different forms of physical therapy that are, that are fundamentally different in their, their nature and their operation because they are situated within a vernacular
1: context. I wonder... You're talking about, at least as I understand what you're saying, cultural sensitivity in the evolution of the field in particular cultures. But does that mean it has to be fundamentally different in order to be culturally appropriate? I don't think it
0: has. Well, in terms of cultural sensitivity, I think you're absolutely right. If you have a look at the end of physiotherapy, the front page, the opening page, is a quote from a New Zealand GP and a poet called Glenn Colquhoun. And he says the fundamental thing about majorities is not that they can't see minorities. It's that they can't see themselves. And I think that's a beautiful quote. Now he's talking about in a New Zealand context, Maori and New Zealand European relationships. But I think this applies to physiotherapy. We have no real history because we, because our practice is so based in a kind of dominant white European western global north idea of health where you don't have to really think about the cultural or social context particularly or the person's lived experience you can just focus on the body as machine you can learn the origins and insertions of the hamstring muscles and think that one hamstring muscle is just exactly like all the rest the amount of time in our curricula that the students learn about a social context of health And not just as an add on, but in a way that says to the student, this denies the biological basis of illness is almost none. And that's because we don't know how to teach that. How do you teach a person in the morning that the hamstring muscles are really important and then in the afternoon you teach them? No, they're not. (laughs) But we We are dealing with fundamentally philosophically different ways of viewing health. We have just chosen to situate ourselves in one camp for hundred years. My point is I think we are we are the time is running out on a biologically centered approach to health. The body as machine is, is running out of time not because we don't want people who are technically skilled it's just that if we think about even just from a context of digital disruption AI and robotics um, Daniel and Richard Susskind, who wrote a great book called The Future for the, of the Professions, have argued that anything that you can explain to somebody in the near future, anything that you can make a list or a set of instructions of, which includes most of the technical skills that physios learn, will almost certainly go to someone or something else that is cheaper to train and employ than we are. So if you were to think about physiotherapy, your physiotherapy practice and you were to write down everything and anything that you do that can be explained or done as a checklist or standardized for somebody else, and put that in a folder and put that away, assume that that's going to be gone in the next few years, it's most of the technical basic skill stuff that we do. So what does that leave behind then as the essence of future physiotherapy? It probably isn't stuff that resides in the biological domain. It's stuff that resides in the experiential and the existential and the human domain and in the social domain. So I'm arguing that's where we need to now start putting our emphasis.
1: Yeah, Fair point. Well, I really have enjoyed uh, our discussion today. I really wanna thank you both for writing your essay and drawing attention to some of these issues and for your books. I look forward to reading your latest book. I haven't uh, as yet. And um, I really have enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan.
0: This is an APTA podcast.